0: Okay, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew twenty-eight, and be there first in our Bibles, we'll also be going over to Mark chapter four, so you can kind of uh, put put a thumb there. We'll be talking today about the goal of the Great Commission, and I'm going to start out today by just asking just a very quick question: How many people here? Have ever had to buy gifts for small children pretty much everybody right as a new parent you know we often check toys for safety we check toys for appropriateness or how well they'll hold up if a child plays well or plays hard with it i mean kind of gone are the days of the tonka trucks where i think there's probably still tonka trucks in my now my uh brother's yard. It used to be my mom's house in the backyard that are still there from our childhood. That's just how well they held up, but not so much anymore. A lot of gifts, a lot of toys um, come with these three frustrating words, some assembly required. You ever had toys that say that? That's like three lies for the price of one, right? And I'm pretty sure, based on my own personal experience in putting some of these toys together, they have more pieces than the space shuttle does. I mean, they're just really hard to put together sometimes. And I I just remember the frustration that occurred, you know, usually during one of the busiest nights of the year, Christmas Eve, trying to put these together in a little small house, trying to keep the girls in their room so I could put their Christmas... Presents together, and it just doesn't work out very well when you're. They know you're putting your Christmas presents together. They're always trying to sneak out because they need a drink or they need to use the bathroom and all this kind of stuff because they're trying to to see their toys. I remember one year, ambulance, um, take my presents from the home and bring them to the ambulance station while I was working and put them together in between calls. And my uh, partner got to uh, help me with that. And we do these things, though, as parents, because we love seeing our kids' reactions when they open their presents on Christmas morning. And I thought about the words, some assembly required, and then thought about the training of a new Christian. All of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ are following him as disciples. And as disciples, we kind of have that spiritually stamped on us that says, some Assembly Required. And we call that assembly in the church discipleship. And we get those, that idea from the verses in the Bible that are called the Great Commission. Now Jesus is a gracious Father. He gives us these gifts called converts or new Christians. But they come with the idea that some assembly is required. And that is one of the primary functions of the church of God is to take these baby Christians and grow them, to help them become mature in the faith, and to pick up the mantle and pass that along to the next generation. So let's look and see how Jesus explained that to us in Matthew 28. And this is Jesus speaking right after the resurrection and right before he ascends to heaven. Reading from the Christian Standard Version, Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Father, I ask, Lord, that you Use these verses, Father, that we're going to be studying this morning and use it to put a new desire and a new impetus within our lives to see disciples made for the kingdom of God. Lord, that is the reason you have kept us here. That's the reason that we don't get saved and are immediately taken to heaven. You have us here for this very purpose to make disciples out of all nations. So help us to to see that in our own lives, and help us to understand that and to live it for your glory and your kingdom. I ask this in your name. Amen. So as I said, these verses are called the Great Commission, and they primarily have to do with spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire world and to everyone who is not here or who is not heard. It's the primary reason for evangelism. It's the primary reason for missions. This is why we give to missions, so that people can hear the gospel and so that disciples can be made. When I got saved, it goes to dozens of different types of programs that deal with evangelism, that deal with how to share your faith, of how to, to present the gospel in such a way that people will want to become a Christian. And, and most of these um, programs The goal is to get somebody to pray a certain way so we could call them a Christian and they would be saved. That was always seemed to be the goal. About 15 years ago, we used one of these programs at our last church. We spent a week in Racine in one of the worst areas of town going door to door and talking to people on the street. We covered blocks and blocks of Racine doing this. There was a special evangelist that came in, taught us how to use his program, which is essentially kind of, we're acting like we're having him fill out a survey where we uh, kind of branch out and go into presenting the gospel with that. Well, when it was over, we had a big celebration service. We had used this program and talked to over 400 people in that week. And 250 of them prayed the sinner's prayer with us. So we were celebrating. They're saved now. And the evangelists that had that outreach left, and you think we would have to go to multiple services for these 250 people that are now going to be coming into the church, and we're going to have to hire more staff, recruit more volunteers, have more programs to handle this huge influx of people. But do you know how many of those 250 people we saw come to our church? Zero. We had zero growth from that whole effort. We, for months, talked about this in staff meetings. And it came down to, we chose the wrong metric to determine a person's salvation. It's not just a prayer. It has to be a complete change in a person's life that comes from the regeneration of their hearts and that's the point here we are to make disciples not just converts when it comes to making disciples Jesus said the secrets of the kingdom were held within a few parables and one of these parables a parable of the show, sower sh- shows us these secrets in Mark chapter 4 Jesus teaches about a farmer scattering seed Jesus describes a different ground that this seed, which represents the word of God, is going to fall upon. The hard-pressed soil, or the path. The rocky soil, or thorns. Or it would fall onto good ground. And then Jesus tells the people this parable. They seem to understand it, and then he has to take his disciples aside and really explain it to them. And Jesus told him this in Matthew, or, uh, Mark Four verse 14. The sower sows the word of God. Some are like the word sown on the path or the hard pressed ground. And when they hear, they, when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. Others are like seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But, they have no root. They are short-lived. And when distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seed sown among thorns. Those are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age and deceitfulness of wealth and desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seed sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. Jesus here is showing us why most modern evangelical methods fall short of actually making a disciple. The seeds of the gospel only hit the hard ground, or the rocky soil, or maybe it gets thrown into the the thorns. The people hear the gospel, maybe have a temporary spiritual high. They may have a, a an emotional experience, but then Satan will come and immediately destroy that seed. And that's where I think much, many times in the church, we have fallen short. Is that we only create converts, and not disciples. An, this is an interesting study for me because modern society wants to paint Jesus as this kind of really nice guy who did nice things. But that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. They haven't really read what he said. Jesus is actually pretty stern on many topics. And who exactly qualifies as a disciple is one of them. This is what he says in in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. In order to be his disciple, you must hate your family. He said, that that seems extreme. Aren't we to love our families? He was even specific. He said, your mother, father, sister, brother, wife, and children, even your own life. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you're going to call yourself my disciple, I'm number one. Jesus, on a list of anything else, creates idols. Jesus is that list. If you have a list of priorities in this life, it should be number one, Jesus, number two, Jesus, number three, Jesus, number four. It all should um, come from Jesus, is what he is saying. And if he is at number one and everything on your list, all these other things will, will take care of themselves. The second thing he says in Luke 14, 27, he says, carry your cross if you're going to be my disciple. Crosses are not convenient. Crosses are not something you just toss in a purse or carry in your wallet or put put on a necklace around your neck. It is a heavy, it is a burdensome thing. It is to remind us, you were bought with the price, and now you are owned by Jesus. If you are his disciple, you serve him and not yourself. The third thing Jesus said, if you're going to be his disciple, is give up everything you have, in verse 33. If you are his disciple, everything you own, everything you accomplish, everything you treasure, goes on the altar of worshiping him. And if you agree and live by these three principles, Jesus is saying, then you can call yourself my disciple. And that's the difference between a convert and the disciple. It's not just praying the prayer. It's a radical life change to agree to follow Jesus no matter where he might lead you. So, when we make a disciple, you may ask, well, what do we do with them then? This is part of the sum assembly required that, that comes of starting them down the path of following Jesus. And Jesus gives us an answer in the Great Commission. He said, baptize them. First thing you do. And a lot of people like to debate if a person has to be baptized to be saved, to be considered a a disciple of Jesus. And I've always find, find this argument to be interesting with people is that they become instant theologians or lawyers when they start talking about this very subject, about being Baptized. And they'll say, well, you know, Pastor John, the, technically the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and Jesus said you'll be with him in paradise, so he, he, he did okay. You don't have to be baptized. And with, my response to that is, okay, you're right. So when you are ever nailed to a cross, I will give you that pass. The exception to a rule doesn't negate or cancel the rule. It just happens to be an exception to that rule. Or if you're on a deathbed, struggling to breathe and running out of time, I'll give you that pass. But up to right now, you're sitting here under the sound of my voice or listening by podcast, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, get in the water. Be baptized. If you're choosing to follow Jesus, why would you want to be disobedient to the first thing he asks you to do? That doesn't make any sense to me. And it shouldn't make any sense to you. Because baptism is your public confession of faith in Jesus. It symbolizes dying to your old self and starting a new life that is lived for your king. And this is something that most churches, including sometimes ours, aren't as good at. But when we get a new convert, we should make every effort to baptize them as soon as possible. And now we have the thing downstairs that we can use to do that. I say this because if you allow a person to be a convert and not want to switch over to a disciple by being baptized, you give the devil a foothold in allowing them to be disobedient to the first thing Christ asked them to do. I also strongly encourage anyone who wants to call themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ to receive a second baptism described in the Bible, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, in John twenty twenty two, the resurrected Jesus breathes on the disciples. He restores that Holy Spirit connection living within them that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And this happens with anyone who repents of their sins and turns to follow Jesus. However, there is a second infilling of the Holy Spirit. In our fellowships, the assembly of God, we believe that there is a second infilling infilling or outpouring of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us. We see it in Acts chapter 2 and throughout really the entire book of Acts that the Holy Spirit falls upon the, in the room with tongues of fire, clothing them with power from on high. They speak in a language previously not knowing to them, a spiritual language that we call uh, speaking in tongues. That's how the Holy Spirit now clothes this new disciple with power not just to be a witness but to just live for him to be able to do all these requirements that I've talked to about or I've talked about before this is the power for them to do it this is changing that sinner who had been spiritually wearing the rags of sin it's now being torn off and he's clothed with robes of righteousness and power you remember that Adam was hiding from God? And Adam said, I hid because I'm naked. And God said, who told you you're naked? That was the Holy Spirit was taken away from Adam when he chose to sin. And he knew it was gone and he didn't want to face God in his failure. This is why disciples of Jesus Christ need that clothing from on high. Need that power to come down and the Holy Spirit to fill them at all times so we can live for him. And that will teach us to be obedient in all things. The second part about the assembling of the new disciple is teaching them. In the parable of the sower, where the seed was thrown on rocky ground, Jesus teaches that it wasn't able to grow because it has no roots. And this idea of being rooted is critically important in the life of a new disciple. If I go out into my yard and pick up a flower and I just drop it on the grass, it's going to die. It's been pulled out from its roots. It has no connection to the ground. The wind can blow it wherever it wants. The sun will scorch it because it has no connection to its life. And people are the same way. If you consider what happens when we present to them the gospel, and they accept and want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, we're ripping them out of the ground that they have been attached to their entire life. You ever heard the, the phrase, you break it, you bought it? Ever heard that phrase? The same thing is kind of like with a new disciple. In this case, we're breaking them out of their life of sin and put, and planting them within the church. And this is huge. This is huge. It's our job to replant them into the life of the local church. And this is huge when Tammy and I started to follow Jesus. I guarantee you we would not have survived as young Christians if the church we were going to hadn't showered us with attention, we would not have survived. I mean, both sides of our family were against us becoming Christians. Both of them were constantly on us about this. They were all kind of mainstream, traditional, Lutheran, Catholic kind of um, people. All our friends were against it. It's like, well, wait a minute, you don't want to go out to the bars on Friday? What's, what's up with that? We lost a lot of our friends. Our jobs was against it. Even my Army Reserve unit thought I would lost my mind. We had huge pressure to, to turn away from it. In fact, when we got married, my grandparents made a rare trip to Kenosha to see us get married. And they're true northern Wisconsin people up in Hayward. They're convinced anything south of Eau Claire is entering the gates of hell. They think there's nothing south of Eau Claire that's anything any good. So for them to come down to see me after my mom said that we joined some religious cult was a, a big, uh, big deal. So Tammy and I were both at huge risk at becoming seedlings that would not develop a root system. We were at huge risk. We had everything coming against us. However, our new church, we had all kinds of people coming alongside us to make us we, sure we got to church. We had all kinds of invites to people's houses, or gatherings, church events. Some of them even came to pick us up when we didn't have a car. If the church door were open, somebody would make sure that we were there. And in a very short time, the church became everything to us. They became our new family. That allowed us to bury our roots deep into Christ, deep into his church, to learn his word, and to watch others as they follow Jesus, and then do the same. Because really, that's what discipleship is. There's one more thing about discipleship that I've learned. Occasionally, our district holds seminars for pastors, and they'll bring in speakers to talk to us, and I don't remember who this person was, but it was it was years, maybe over ten years ago. But he taught something that really stuck with me. He taught us in a way a way to avoid becoming spiritually stagnant in our relationship with Christ. And he got this idea through the Apostle Paul's life. In the Apostle Paul's life, he had three distinct um, types of people. Number one, Paul had a mentor. Paul had a brother and Paul had a student. Paul's mentor originally was his rabbi Gamaliel, later it became Jesus spiritually and the apostles in life. His spiritual brother was Barnabas. That spiritual brother is someone who's on the same, roughly same spiritual level and maturity that he was, and a friend and someone to hold him accountable for his life. And his student was primarily Timothy, and then Titus, and John Mark. So I would encourage you that if you really want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and join him in his great commission, that you consider doing the same. Identify a person to be your mentor. Identify a person to be your brother or your sister. And then identify the person that you are bringing up behind you. And for parents, especially parents of young children, that's going to be your kids, primarily. But it could also be a newer person in your church or a new person in your life. Maybe somebody who you've led to want to follow Jesus but haven't, hasn't quite gotten planted in a church yet. It could be a neighbor or coworker co-worker who's really struggling in life and needs a friend. I'd encourage you, be that friend to them. Be that mentor to them. And you'll really see Jesus explode in their life. And we will really fulfill the Great Commission.